course, he calls it all kinds of things. He calls it fate. He calls it. Uh, <laughs> hey, you know, we're the only we're the only crowd in the entire world. Are you aware of that? Americans are unique in one thing. We do not believe in things like luck and fate. No, no. That word never enters. Now, wait a minute. You say, oh, you, 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 I can see the look of disbelief coming across. No, let's put it this way. Now, wait a minute. The little people believe in luck and fate, but I'm not talking about little people here. I'm talking about the philosophical panjadrums. I'm talking about the leader types. Little guys know there is such a thing as luck and fate. That's why, because you see, uh, it, it covers, to me, it covers both ends of the scale. Both ends. That on the one hand, you'll never find, you know, when a little book is, is published that says, uh, uh, The Power of Positive Thinking, for example. Never once does uh, Dr. Norman Vincent Peale imply that there is such a thing as good luck or bad luck. In other words, if you think right, there won't be any such thing as good luck and bad luck. You create your own luck. This, this is a belief that is held by many people, uh, that there's no such thing as that unkind fate that sends those lightning bolts out of the clouds. Uh, on the other hand, you'll find way down at the other end of the scale, large numbers of people think that all of life is luck, and they got nothing but bad. <laughs> no, really. You'll find that, 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 that at the other end of the scale, the guy that's never made it, he thinks that everybody else made it because they were lucky. Or because, ah, well, you know, what are you going to do? The guy, for crying out loud, a guy was born lucky. What do you mean? I got nothing but bad luck all of my life, for crying out loud. Look at the neighborhood I was born in, right there from the start. Well, uh, this is, uh, this is, these are the two ends of the scale. One group believes that luck does not enter anything that they ever do. That they arrive at a certain point, they have made it because of an innate goodness or an innate talent which they have. Uh, and then, of course, you have the other guys who figure that nothing they do will ever make it for them because they have an innate streak of bad luck. Rottenness goes with them. Now, uh, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to propose a theory here that there, is a, that there is a third force that has nothing to do with luck, uh, that has nothing to do with fate, but is, in a sense, the humiliation factor. Now, now, what is the... I, I think that successful men have never been successfully humiliated. Uh, it, it is hard to believe, uh, it is hard to even conceive of uh, General MacArthur being really hu an embarrassing moment happening to General MacArthur. It just doesn't happen. Uh, that, that the humiliation factor does not play much of a part in General MacArthur's life. And yet there are the rest of us who are humiliated constantly. Humiliated. Uh, five minutes ago, I got this important call from this executive vice president here at WOR. I figured that something great was going to happen. And I said, what is it, Charlie? And he said, uh, well, uh, I have a question to ask here. A question, he says, you're the only one on the staff who can answer it. And I said, really? All of a sudden, I figured, you know, the, the, the big light bulb was lighting up in the front office, and they finally realized that there's real talent at work here that finally they're realizing that my basically beautiful personality should be exploited to the full. And he says, yes, uh, I would like to ask you a question about Vic and Sade. Humiliated again. They would never call John Gambling and ask him a question about Vic and Sade. 
I can assure you that Edward R. Murrow is never called up by the head of CBS to answer a question on the Lone Ranger. I can assure you of that. The humiliation factor is deep in American life. Bring it up, Tony. Big. Come on, all the way. Hooray, hooray for the U.S. of A. With the fields of waving grain, wave eternally. Where all of us are up to our blooming knickers in whatever it is. You have never heard a version of the stars and stripes like this. All right, all right. Now, the reason that I bring up this humiliation factor, please reset that, Tony, because we will be using that very shortly. It's because of a... You know, everybody, uh, everybody's talking about the World's Fair. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, all the various magazines are, are doing uh, a preview of the 1965 fair, what you're going to see at the fair, uh, all the various things about uh, the exhibits and how the lines have been improved, how you can get in quicker to see nothing now. You don't have to wait nearly as long in line to see that vapid exhibit that you're going to wait in line to see. However, uh, I, I last year at this same time, I was impressed by the unconscious truth that keeps creeping out in these things that we uh, we're, we're very self-conscious about, these big issues like the World's Fair and so on. Hey, hey, watch it, Tony, now. Now, come on, don't bother him in there, Bob. He's doing a job here. Now, you, you get him after the show. Now, what what I am about to bring uh, bring forth, and that's all right. Now, you don't worry about any of that stuff. You stick right here with this. We'll tell you all the records that we played after the show. Okay? All, all that. Uh, that's why I don't play records, by the way. The minute you do, everyone says, Who played that? Who was on that record? For crying out loud, what label was that? God could be on there doing a show. He would get no audience. The minute he plays a record, forget it. <laughs> but nevertheless, here is what I mean by the humiliation factor at work, unconsciously. And and I'm I'm a great student of irony. Now now uh, irony is very remote from what we ordinarily call comedy. Uh, you know, by the way, I wonder why they don't use that word more often. Uh, you know, they'll talk about a guy as a humorist today, uh, and very few of them really are. They'll talk about a guy as a comic. Some of them are. We'll put it that way. They talk about people as uh, satirists. Very few of them are. And don't come up with Stanley Kubrick. I'm sorry. Uh, they talk about people being, uh, being pungent social commentators. Few of them are. However, there's one word that we don't use that I would like to see brought back. Maybe we don't use it because there aren't many of them around who do this who work in this field, because the field works in itself. In short, you don't have to have anybody do it. It just happens. It's like that, that force of humiliation. It, uh, it operates independently. You know, nobody's in charge of uh, gravity. Uh, it works by itself. Uh, no, <laughs> nobody, nobody is operating the controls that makes the Earth orbit around the sun. It does it by itself. It's one of the natural Powers, and I think irony is one of the natural powers that creates a lot of confusion in people's minds. The word that I would like to see brought back uh, 
is ironist. A man who deals in irony. For example, uh, to give you an example of an ironist, uh, somebody like Swift, Jonathan Swift, was far more of an ironist than he was a satirist. Whereas, on the other hand, somebody like Voltaire was more of a satirist than he was an ironist. Uh, the word irony is a great word. I suggest you look it up. Here, for example, is an example. Uh, here's a dynamic piece of irony right now, which is, you know, just floats out of the air. It's like elephant dandruff. It comes down out of the sky. It's like monster effluvia. Uh, <laughs> we, we're, we're not in charge of it. It just happens. Listen to this beautiful piece of business as a, a piece of public relations for the World's Fair. It says... The United States Army's formula for achieving peace through understanding will be illustrated in one of the new 1965 exhibits in the Travel and Transportation Pavilion. The exhibit explains the Army's worldwide programs of operations to achieve international betterment. It will make clear to fairgoers, through sight, sound, and touch, the Army's methods of shoring up the defenses of countries facing, quote, uh, small aggressions by an elusive enemy. The display, uh, incidentally, this is a display that will, uh, as you know, is uh, dedicated to peace through understanding. The display will include a simulated trip around the world to see Army personnel, quote, helping people help themselves and uh, to aid you in understanding a little more about peace through understanding. In another area, visitors will be able to test their marksmanship with the new modern M16 rifle now being used in southeastern Asia. Please, Tony, watch. Now see what I mean? There it is. There it is. All right, there we go. Very good. Well, I'll give you two cues before the real cue then. All right. Da, 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 da. Very good. Hold it down there now. you got to keep an eye on me, Tony. I'm very slippery. But the point, the point uh, uh, to me, this is pure irony. The idea of, a, of an exhibit of peace through understanding and you wind up with being able to test your marksmanship on the new Army's M16 rifle. Now, now I, I have felt for a long time that, uh, that the, kind of, the kind of truth that creeps out of public relations blurbs is the kind of truth that falls in the realm of irony. Uh, the other day, for example, I got a public relations bit from some company, and it says, uh, put more action into windows. And they're talking about shop windows. Put more action into your shop windows by setting mannequins into lifelike poses. Why not try a window of a boy and girl mannequin in characteristic poses? <laughs> I, I uh, suddenly uh, realized, don't look so confused, Tony. There are several lifelike poses you can put a boy and girl model or mannequin into. And I thought, gee whiz, that's adding a little action into the uh, store window bit. In fact, one of the greatest store windows I ever saw was in Munich. And I saw it about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. It was a little weird moment. I came through the store there walking through. It was like an arcade. You know, you could see all these store windows all lit up, and I'm walking through a long, uh, a long tunnel-like affair. And there was a store window all lit up, and they had done exactly this. They had mannequins. You know, we in America believe in our mannequins just being mannequins. You know, they just stand there. And are you aware that a mannequin has about a, a four- or five-year lifespan? 
Now, it isn't because it wears out. It's because the style in people changes. Are you aware of that? Now, I'm not talking about whether people are skinny or fat, but the look of people changes. For example, if you look at old movies, you will find that there was a period about ten years ago when the Grace Kelly type of person, the sort of dignified, queenly girl, was very, very big. Uh, Grace Kelly, Ingrid Bergman, that type. And all the models, all the mannequins, had that queenly, regal quality to them that period. You could not put one in the window today of Saks because it would look like it's something out of the 1880s. No, did you know about this, that the look of people comes and goes? Uh, Take a look at at a current magazine and you will see large numbers of what was, uh, just a few years ago, what would have been called an ugly girl has now become the standard look. Uh, and it's called The Beautiful Girl. Uh, certainly by any standard, you could not call Barbara Streisand one of the lovelier creatures on this planet. And yet, that type of girl has become very in. It's very popular. You'll see her in ads. You'll see her in uh, in beer ads. There's a, there's a beer ad that looks like was posed by her. Did you see that one? Where she very aggressively looks up and says, He's witty. He's charming. He drinks Schlitz. I think I'll marry him. You know? That kind of thing. Well, now, that is an example of how people's look, the look of people, comes and goes and changes. And this changes the mannequin. Uh, For example, if you look at at the old movies, uh, you'll see at one point uh, there were girls with very broad faces, were very, very popular, broad, wide faces, the Anne Sheridan look. They had wide, flat, broad faces. Priscilla Lane, all the girls had sort of round, flat faces at that time. There were dozens of them. And then suddenly in came the high cheekbone type look. And that took care of all the round face girls. All the round faces were gone. Forget it. They were all gone. Uh, And even the men of that period had round faces. Uh, Spencer Tracy had a round face. Uh, Somebody like Pat O'Brien, he had a round face. These were all big heroes of the period. Clark Gable, his face was almost totally round. If you think back on it, it's a round face. And they, they, that was the round face era. And then suddenly, uh, in, during the war time or at the end of the war, in came the high cheekbone, Rita Hayworth. And that was when people like Jack Palance made it. All the high cheekbone people. Rita Hayworth, Jack Palance, and dozens of women began to emerge as the top movie stars because they had the look. They had the right look at that period. That continued for a few years. And then, boom, that was out. And in came the the very bland, almost emotionless lady who looked like she was untouchable, like she was out of the cameo ads. And that was Grace Kelly. Grace Kelly, uh, you, could, you there were a lot of them at that time. Ingrid Bergman was an example of that type. Uh, who, who are some of the other queenly types that were around just about that period, uh, the Grace Kelly era? Well, there were a lot of them. Uh, they're even hard to remember, but nevertheless, there they were. And then suddenly, about 1957 or 58, something like that, in came the Gamine. Uh, this was the little girl type, uh, automatic. Suddenly, everybody's a little girl. Bridget Bardot, the little girls. Uh, Audrey Hepburn, uh, thousands of little little kid types. But they really were boyish. They were they were not female. They were boy types. 
uh, it would be very hard to tell what sex Audrey Hepburn was more than 50 feet away in a, in a foggy light. Uh, speaking of the sexless, this is WOR AM and FM New York. Do you have a little money button there, Tony? Hit it there. Go. Is your car old enough to smoke? Uh, what did you say? I said, is your car old enough to smoke? Surprising how many cars are. A car needn't be old to smoke. Some cars start burning oil early. If your car uses too much oil, give it Prestone Oil Miser. Prestone Oil Miser is just what the name says. A miser for oil. Prestone Oil Miser stops oil burning, restores lost power, quiets noisy engines, cuts exhaust smoking. Prestone Oil Miser stops piston slap, too. Makes worn engines run quieter. Just add a can of Prestone Oil Miser to your regular oil. Insist on Prestone Oil Miser, a brand you know, a brand you can trust, wherever auto supplies are sold. If your car's old enough to smoke, and it's surprising how many cars are, get Prestone Oil Miser. That's wiser by far. Prestone Oil Miser is a product of Union Carbide. They don't make Scrapple like they used to. Have you tasted Park Scrapple? Listen, when I was a boy in Gettysburg, PA, my mother went to market every week. Bought Scrapple right from the farmer's wife who made it. Yeah, well, Parks, the famous flavor sausage people, makes Scrapple... Listen, because... one week she'd buy from a farmer who put a little extra meat in, see? Next week she'd take from a farm with not quite so much meat, but a freer hand with a seasoning. Yeah, I got news for you. By then, we wanted Scrapple that cooked rich, gold, and brown. And that's the third kind of Scrapple, see? Then once a month she'd send my father over to the next county for a Scrapple that didn't crumble up. Didn't taste as good, but with Scrapple, you give a little, you get a little. Not anymore. You want a meaty, spicy Scrapple that cooks golden brown and doesn't crumble? There ain't any such thing. Yes, there is, and the name of it is Parks, P-A-R-K-S. Parks Scrapple is everything you want, believe me. If that's true... Yes? Then they don't make Scrapple like they used to when I was a boy in Gettysburg, P.A. And am I glad you told me. Oh, boy, those are great accents. Word from Sinister Orientos here. Uh, for those of you who are hung on really fine oriental food, oriental food, I would like to recommend happiness. Let's try that. Happiness. It's a lovely restaurant up on uh, Broadway between 93rd and 94th. And by the way... I think they serve some of the finest northern Chinese food that is obtainable in this entire city. And they have a ten-course dinner, magnificent ten-course dinner, which incidentally includes a little clause that says that you can eat all you want, a ten-course dinner for $2.25. Mysterious Oriental, not know how they do it. Uh, this is <laughs> at Happiness. And they're open seven days a week. They have a little barzy there. And I think you'll find it extremely felicitous between 93rd and 94th on Broadway. Happiness.
Unusual news about an unusual motion picture. It's called Nobody Waved Goodbye. And here at last is a real down-to-earth dramatic film that shows what teenagers feel and never tell, what parents see and never understand. A story of what's happening all over America, the story of privileged children, their desperate parents and the stone wall between them. What's happening on the screen is happening in Darien, Great Neck, the Bronx. It's what's turning 10 million homes into battlegrounds. Today's children seem to be growing up so fast, marrying fast, and falling apart fast. Their confused parents ask why. The confused teenagers ask why not. The name of this powerful picture is Nobody Waved Goodbye. And no parent, no teenager, nobody should miss it. On the same bill is Paul Anka in Lonely Boy, a fascinating featurette that looks deep into the life of a teenage idol. See Nobody Waved Goodbye plus Lonely Boy, now playing Lowe's Capitol and Murray Hill Theatres. Uh, you know, Tony, I wonder if it is possible to attain understanding through an M-16 rifle. <laughs> or even peace, for that matter. I'm just curious about that. Uh, that's the kind of uh, material that Voltaire would have used. Uh, that's that's Voltairean cosmic uh, irony. Uh, I'm not so sure that would have been the kind that Swift would have used. Uh, on the other hand, I'm it's possible let's say somebody like uh, no I don't think Chaucer would have used that I don't think he would have understood the M16 rifle you know speaking of uh, getting back to those uh, mannequins uh, I've I've always been fascinated by the idea of uh, mannequins in windows as a reflection of the people around you know the people around at the time uh, that people uh, how people see themselves and what is a fashionable look. Have you ever wondered about uh, drawings? Have you ever looked at a, at a 16th century drawing uh, or maybe a, a painting by uh, somebody of the 15th or 16th centuries? And you wondered, well, why, why did they paint people like that? I mean, people surely didn't look that way. Have you wondered about that? Have you have you looked at, at, at drawings, say, that they did in Egypt? And you said to yourself, well, for crying out loud, people didn't look like that, did they? Uh, why why did they draw the people that way? Do you follow what I'm saying here? The, 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 that as you go up to the year, like, say, uh, 1,000, and they... After all, these were intelligent men. These, these were people who built cathedrals. These were people who built great cities. Uh, they had a sense of proportion. They had a sense of, of of vision. They could see things. They had the same kind of eyes, you know, that you have. I'm curious about that, too, though, uh, come to think of it. If you could look at the world through the eyes of a man that, say, was alive 4,000 years ago, do you think he would see a tree the way you saw it or see it? Now, now, don't be so quick to say, well, yeah, yeah, sure. Would he really? Would he look at the sun and see it the way you see it? In short, you know a lot more about trees than he knows trees, than he knows knew about them. Uh, that, that there were many people, for example, 4,000 years ago, who worshipped trees. Uh, there, was a, there was a race of religionists at one point, something like twelve or 13,000 years ago, who, who uh, worshipped various gods of the forest. Now, when he looked, would look at a tree, would he see it the way you would see it? You don't worship a tree. 
would he see it with the same, even the same eye? It's a good question. Now, now let's say a man who, who worshipped, let's say, the idea of the god of animals. We'll say he had, uh, he worshipped at at uh, like many religions four or five thousand years ago. Worshipped cats, for example. This is a fact. Now, when he saw a cat walking across the street, would he see a cat the same way you see it? Would it even look the same? Now, now here here's uh, here's the kind of thing that I mean. We go to Washington. All of us will go. We'll say to uh, to Washington D.C. Have you ever seen the statue of Lincoln in the Lincoln Memorial there? And there is Lincoln looking down. He's sitting on a chair, and uh, he's, his head is kind of lowered, and he's looking a little tired. Have you seen that, that statue, that's famous, uh, that very famous statue of the Lincoln Memorial? Now, when we look at that statue, are we really just looking at marble? Are we really just looking at a statue of a man, or do we see all kinds of other things that, say, somebody from another planet would never even see in it? He just, you know, look at it. Would he think it's noble, for example? Would he think it's tragic? I question. <laughs> I wonder. Uh, or would he even think it's good-looking? Would he think it's interesting or attractive, even? I don't know. That's hard to say. Now, getting back to the mannequins, now that's that's uh, it's very closely related to the mannequins. This little philosophical discussion here is closely related to the kind of mannequins that we have in our major stores. You know, they found out. They found that the life. Uh, this was a few years ago. Now I suppose it's even shorter now because time, everything is going faster and faster these days. But just a few years ago, uh, the uh, manufacturers of mannequins gave mannequins roughly four or five years of life, and then they were useless. People would not buy the clothes that were displayed on them. In short, a, a, a store that rented, they, they usually rent their mannequins, you know. A store that rented three or four hundred different types of mannequins would have to go back and get a whole new set uh, four or five years later because new people. Now, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean uh, younger people or older people, but a different type of people had become popular. Now, the question arises, do people look like that? That's a good question. Do people look like the mannequins you see, say, in Saks or in Bonwit Teller? Do people look like that any more than the people look uh, like the people that you saw on the, on the uh, walls of the pyramids, the great tombs of the Egyptian kings? Or is that kind of a projection of a sort of dream and an idealization? Not even really an idealization, something else even subtler than that. Uh, I, I, uh, I've, I've noticed, if you'll notice uh, the, the, uh, the various mannequins now today, you'll notice that the men, the mannequin men, uh, have changed drastically. They practically don't even have them anymore. You, verify, you find very few men or male mannequins in windows any longer. Uh, and those that you do are highly stylized. You cannot tell whether they're male or female. They may be made of, uh, uh, maybe, the, have you seen the ones that are just made of wire? They're made of a wire, and they'll have a big piece of uh, uh, sunglass on their head. Uh, or then you'll see the kind that are made out of some kind of pressed tin foil. It'll look like it's made out of bronze, something of that nature. Uh, you'll see it's difficult to tell, and I think this might be because the male is slowly beginning to 
disappear in our society as such, as male, as an identifiable member of society. He's beginning to, to merge into some kind of neuter quality. Uh, slowly he's beginning to disappear until the day, until you, to, you to look at somebody like Clark Gable on the screen, Clark Gable is about as rare today as, uh, as red ants are. Uh, Egyptian, Indian, African red ants are in Westchester. They're very rare. Uh, he just isn't an, an American type now. He isn't a type that, that, uh, now he, now this, that is not to say that there aren't people walking around who look like that. But they're not officially any longer recognized by society as being the official type. If anything, I suspect that, uh, say, somebody like Bob Dylan could be the official type of our time, uh, who, who uh, from across the street, closely resembles my cousin Arlene. Now, <laughs> this is a this is a new a new uh, very interesting new turn that it's taken. Now, look at the women that you see in the the mannequin women. That's a curious uh, uh, new breed. These are are very, very strong women. Very strong. They're dynamic, strong, and uh, they're physically strong. Not only are they physically strong, they seem to be exceedingly, almost impervious as far as any emotional uh, darts and slings and arrows from the external world is concerned. They're almost like a reflection of the Vogue model. You cannot imagine a Vogue model crying. You cannot imagine a Vogue model weeping over a man. Uh, you certainly can't imagine her having any kind of involvement uh, that would cause her emotional distress. So you see, this type of, of mannequin is slowly beginning to emerge, and you will find her counterpart in the movie stars that are beginning to emerge, too, because the movie stars always bear a close relationship to the idealization of that period, I think. And so the, the stars that are coming up are the impervious people. Uh, they're, they're totally impervious. You cannot imagine, say, the Jane Fonda type really having trouble. Uh, Barbara Streisand does not have trouble. She causes trouble. That's, that's a, a very different concept of woman. Uh, she, she, she instigates trouble, but does not, does not have it. it. It doesn't happen to her. Uh, on the other hand, the male that is emerging is, is a pallid kind of receptacle for trouble. Jack Lemon is always troubled. Jack Lemon is pursued by trouble eternally throughout all of his movies. Now, the trouble, of course, comes from Shirley MacLaine, who never has any. <laughs> and, 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 and you'll find that the mannequins in the stores are of that kind. They're transparent, they're nervous. Uh, they, they stand with their head down, and they wear a shawl over their back, and it says, uh, for Cherry Grove. Uh, it, <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the receptacle for trouble rather than the disher outer of it. Now, do you know what they do with old mannequins? Are you aware of one of the more interesting uh, results that a mannequin feels? What do they do with the old ones? Well, immediately following this Whoopi Miller beer spot, which Tony has gone... No, that's gone? Well, yeah, it's live, but it has music with it, doesn't it? Oh, you don't have the music? Well, all right, there should be music with this. I know it's live, honey, but uh, we'll do it straight then. 
Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer, is the favorite reception or refreshment of golfers across the country. See, it should have music behind it. As the game of golf lures millions of new players to its ranks each year, Miller High Life is served and enjoyed by millions who demand quality refreshment. You can see why there's so many good golfers around. Sparkling, flavorful, distinctive Miller High Life has a heritage as old as the royal ancient game itself. First brewed in European castles, this year Miller High Life celebrates its 110th anniversary in America. So I suggest you... Lay in a few cans of Miller High Life and celebrate the last century. Brewed only in Milwaukee, okay? Here's the big three for McLean's. It's McLean's, the toothpaste that cleans with a new kind of taste that's wild. Oh, yeah. What a taste, what a zing. When you smile, all the bells will ring. Get them white, start tonight with McLean's. Yeah, it's time you tried the swinging new toothpaste that gets teeth irresistibly white. McLean's has a taste so dazzling you can feel it whitening. Your whole mouth feels refreshed and invigorated. Now try new McLean's, you hear? It's McLean's, the toothpaste that cleans with a new kind of taste that's using that sweet kid stuff. You know, uh, if you're interested in what happens to old, worn-out, outmoded, uh, outmoded mannequins, uh, <laughs> I don't know whether to bring this story out or not, but it's the truth, that outmoded mannequins are used in large quantities by the Army for target practice. Yep. <laughs> and, and, and somehow that has an ironical, uh, an ironical twist to it. That after the mannequin has stood in Saks Fifth Avenue, in Bonwit Tellers, in John David, the day finally comes when the mannequin is taken out of the window. And the people, you know, the people around say, well, just isn't selling. A new type has come in. It's the tall, thin, willowy type now and the short broad-faced Clark Gable type is gone and down in the basement he goes for a few hours and then they pack him into trucks and they take them oh, oh another thing too must be pointed out are you aware that the mannequin has different connotations and different types in different areas of the country that the mannequin that sells in New York does not sell in Chicago and that the mannequin that sells in Chicago does not sell in Indianapolis, and that when you get finally to the little towns way out in the sticks where people literally are still fighting the forces of nature, you know, and they've got outhouses and, and they, uh, they read the, uh, the Sears Roebuck Spring Catalog like they read the Village Voice here in New York, you know, uh, way out there you'll find that the mannequins that are operating there, uh, if, you ever, if you ever see any of them in the windows, they have a peculiar 1925 look. There's a sort of bland, friendly, open, Rotarian look to all the monitor, to all the mannequins. You know, you have a feeling that all the mannequins have just come from the penny supper down at the First Baptist Church, and they 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 have that open, untroubled look 
of the man who lives uh, in this little community way out in Iowa someplace whose deepest concern is whether or not it's going to rain next week or whether uh, the crops are going to come in or whether the wind is going to blow. He knows not from Freud. He knows not from... Uh, oh, he's not troubled by Jean-Paul Sartre and the existentialists. He is not tortured by Norman Mailer. He is not like Norman Mailer, I should say. He is not driven to find the great American dream. He is not He is not propelled forward or backward or sideways, or however the anti-hero of today is propelled. He's just got to get out there every morning and dig up the crops. Every morning he's got to get the tractor started. So the people that he conceives of as people, the way he sees people, he sees them in a different way than we do here in New York City, where we're all sort of convoluted and, and uh, we're, we're in, inward directed and uh, we're the great urban mass of now. We, we, look, we look at our, our, uh, our mannequins. We look at our mannequins for something else. Now, uh, as a kind of a side issue, kind of a little asterisk on the side of this mannequin bit, have you noticed that the mannequins themselves, now let's take the male mannequin. The male mannequin has almost disappeared uh, as an actual figure. You don't see many of them now. You may see stylized versions of male mannequins. But the most fascinating part of it of the mannequin world is the props that they use. If you'll notice, many of the very she-she shops where the males uh, generally spend most of their time on little fluffy pink sweaters and and uh, bikini-type bathing suits, and they wear little uh, little elf shoes and one thing and another, and the giggling is high and furious, you'll notice that the props are almost unbelievably Freudian and masculine. Giant bulls! Oh, yeah, they'll have a prop, you know, be an enormous stone bull or, or, or a fantastic ram will be charging into a wall. Or they'll have a 15th century cannon. It's a great brass-bound cannon that has enormous wooden wheels and is about to fire a shot into the castle in Spain. You'll find that the props are masculine, but the mannequins themselves are very, very neuter. Now, on the other hand, you'll find that the props are beginning to change drastically in the world of the feminine, or the female, I should say. The word feminine is a bad word today. Uh, the, the female mannequin. You'll find that the prop has become a motorcycle. Have you noticed in the most recent uh, uh, fashion magazines, you ought to take a look at, at the props they're using these days. The chicks are riding motorcycles which used to be a masculine Freudian symbol. Really, it genuinely was. Uh, and you'll see motorcycles on the window now of Saks Fifth Avenue or Bonwit. You'll see motorcycles. You'll see girl bullfighters standing there. Uh, you even see girls now wearing space helmets and space suits. Uh, you'll find that the props in these various windows have become no longer the boudoir. Uh, no longer do you see the dressing table. No longer you do, do you even see the mirror because it's considered very chic today to not be mirror conscious. You just, uh, you know, it's uh, cut the hair short and wear the black boots, uh, pick up the bull whip and jump on your Harley Davidson and take off. Uh, this, uh, <laughs> you'll find that the props are becoming very, very, uh, not necessarily masculine, you see, not Freudian yet, because they have not yet got to the point and they will eventually 
where you will see in the windows of Saks Fifth Avenue, you'll see a giant stone ram, or you will see an enormous brass cannon accompanying the girls' clothing. Now they are approaching it, so they will have things that could be, well, could be construed either way. Uh, the Japanese motorcycle. Uh, <laughs> or they will have a girl driving an MG. Uh, you'll find that the girls, uh, have you noticed more and more uh, car ads now show women almost exclusively driving the cars. Very few men now are seen driving automobiles in ads. In fact, I saw one the other night, a TV ad where it says, There's a tiger under your hood! Yes, put a tiger under that hood of yours! And you see this giant tiger jumping into the hood of the car and it says, Yes, this is the real tiger! And the car goes, Oom! And out it goes on the superhighway. And then you see from behind the shot of it, and who's driving it? A chick. Well, now Freud could have a field day with all this. Very few automobiles today. Uh, there was one recently. Did you see the one uh, for one of the GM cars? It shows this girl with a crash helmet. She looked exactly like Sterling Moss. She has these big goggles above her, and she's got this sullen, angry look. And you see this girl all dressed in this zippered thing, and underneath it it says, The real wildcats are here! Nowhere can you see a male. Nowhere. And so the male as a prop, too, is disappearing. Uh, very definitely disappearing. And the only place in a long time that I've ever seen the male mannequin really show his true colors is in that store that I told you about at 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm coming through that arcade in Munich, and there I see a bunch of male models. Mannequins, genuinely masculine mannequins, and they all have a funny look on their face. And the funny look, at the far end of the window, you see a female mannequin. And they are all looking at her, and they've got one look in their eye. They mean business. <laughs> so I don't know, you know. Uh, somewhere, someplace, right now, there is a mannequin that looks something like you. Are you before your time, or are you ahead of your time as a person? Is your type in today, or is it out? Or... Does anybody fall into the category of the in kind of human being or the out kind? Is it all a myth? Is it all some kind of fantastic dream? Was there never a real Grace Kelly? Was there never actually a real Bridget Bartow? <laughs> or, or a real Rita Hayworth? Or a real Clark Gable? Or was it all some kind of a beaded screen fantasy? And somewhere off in the distance, you can hear the army the army commands ready on the right ready on the left ready on the firing line issue one round ball ammunition load and lock fire when ready and up comes the last generation of mannequins the last crowd to accept their final token tribute